So yesterday I, I said that uh, it was a beautiful, perfect day on Bear Island. Well, there's another kind of perfection today. It's, uh, it's uh, cloudy, foggy, and wet. But things change. And that's one of the themes uh, that we're exploring, I think, uh, this week, as we look at the passion uh, as the story is unfolded in the Gospel of Mark, especially, uh, as a description of the human condition. And really a very inclusive description. There isn't much that happens in our lives that is not in, in some way addressed, maybe nothing serious that is not addressed in the meaning of, the, uh, of this story. And how we read it, how we allow it to read us, will determine how we understand it, of course. We usually think of uh, reading something as uh, something we do in order to extract the meaning from it. But with scripture, this is, is complicated or is deepened by the fact that we have to be open to the meaning of scripture reading us. We have to allow ourselves to be exposed, as it were, to ourselves. So we come to a better understanding of ourselves through the reading of sacred scripture, as, as it is, as the same thing happens when we read great literature or take part in, in great art. So we ourselves become part of the story. We ourselves are in, included in in the truth of the work. So that's why we're spending the week uh, returning to different aspects and to different stages of the, of the passion narrative. And the deeper we go, the more we can see that we're, we're seeing in the passion narrative how the human condition Human life merges with the divine, with the divine being, with the divine reality, with what we call God. It's a dangerous word, God, of course, because we all think, well, we know that we don't know what God is, but we, we act and think and talk as if we do know what God means. And as soon as we use the word God, we are putting God out there to some degree. God becomes external to us some thing or some topic uh, that we talk about and have ideas about and or can speak to. And there is a truth in that, but it's not the deepest truth or the most important truth. So, but we, I think, can see in the passion narrative how the human condition and the divine being merge, how they how they play together, how they come into union. And in the Christian vision and in the vision of, of, of in different ways of other great faiths, this is the meaning of it all. This is the meaning of human existence, that the human grows, develops with a purpose, an ultimate purpose. There is a meaning in life. Otherwise, what's the point of it? So there is an ultimate meaning, an ultimate goal, uh, 
and that that is becoming fully human. But as soon as that fullness of humanity emerges or begins to emerge, because it's a kind of infinite fullness, we don't suddenly wake up one day and say, okay, I finished my human journey, I'm now complete, I can retire. Uh, it's a fullness of life that is continu continuously deepening and expanding, and we're always going to be surprised. Life is always going to throw something unexpected at us to which we have to respond. So the, f the meaning of human existence in this vision is that the human becomes divine. This is the, the heart of, of Christian uh, faith. God became human, the word of God, the son of God became human, took flesh, in order that the, hu the human can become divine. And that's not a new idea. That's a refrain that we hear uh, from the founders of Christian thought, from the f what we call the fathers of the church, those early um, minds that reflected deeply on the mystery of Christ and on the scriptures, and did so in the light of their own mystical experience. What we call Christian theology or any theology or any scripture of any tradition emerges out of this reflection of this marriage, as it were, or union of reflection and experience. And deep experience, the deep experience we enter into over time in meditation. We're not talking just about experiences in meditation, the, the odd mystical experience here or there. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the continuous unfolding experience uh, that meditation opens us to. And in the light of that, when we reflect on the meaning of this experience, that's how we develop our scriptures, that's how we develop our whatever kind of understanding of life we, we, we live with. And so this union of the human and the divine is something that is, is at the heart of the passion narrative in a paradoxical way, with a lot of paradox and with a lot of challenging assumptions. The first assumption is that this union of the divine and the human doesn't just happen easily or in some kind of idyllic realm. It happens in the nitty-gritty and in the suffering as well as the joy of human existence. So this union, this divinization that is the meaning of our life happens here and now in an embodied reality full of surprises, some of them good surprises, some of them tragic events that we, that we simply have to be open to and include. That's how it happens. That's how the meaning of our life is, is, is made. So this union then is a participation in each other's way of being. That's what all human relationship is about. So our relationship with the divine 
is this participation in each other's way of existing. The human participating in the divine, the divine participating in the human. And this is reflected in our most basic human experience of relationship. This is what we do when we live together, when we move in together, whether in marriage or community, um, we begin to share in each other's being. And this is what brings about the ultimate union. So this, uh, this, this morning I'd like to, to reflect, just as yesterday we reflected on the idea of detachment, being detached from the Jerusalem successful moments in our lives, uh, not expecting that they will last forever, realizing that everything is under the law of transience, everything changes, uh, and that requires detachment, a certain stepping back, uh, in order for us to step forward. Uh, so yesterday we spoke about detachment, and today I'd like to speak about relationship, and because this, this seems to me to be what is uh, being illustrated in the next part of the, of the passion story. For John Mayne, this uh, mystery, this, this, this experience of relationship is at the heart of his theology of meditation. And it's not abstract because he uses the power of love as the way to understand what is happening to us. And there's nothing abstract about love. There may be something very spiritual about love, but it's not abstract. It's very real. It touches us physically, chemically, emotionally, uh, and, and spiritually. And it's this, uh, it's this power of love that we discover, encounter, in meditation, at its source, you don't have to meditate to discover love, but in meditation, you begin to approach the source, to touch the source of it, to realize that whatever the manifestations of love may be in your life, however wonderful, however painful, that the manifestations of love in your life are not, as it were, a closed system. However important they are for you, they're not isolated. They come from somewhere. They express something. And in meditation, we turn towards that source. And at first, you know, we do, when we first begin to meditate, and there are some people here uh, who are new to meditation, so talking like this, you, you think that every time you sit down to meditate, you're going to be swept away by this great ocean of love and uh, be blissed out. Well, that doesn't happen every time. But uh, the practice and integrating the practice into daily ordinary life has this effect that it allows us to uh, 
recognize the manifestations of love in our daily lives is, is an emanation or is a, is a reflection of this source of what's, and that source is within us. It's in our heart. It's not outside of us, you know. I mean, basically, you may look for relationship on a dating website, but you don't really find, well, you may find love through the relationships you make and not putting it down, but, uh, but you find love itself in, your, in yourself, not online. There's a danger today that we get too much, too virtual. And we think everything in the human condition can be identified with virtual reality or online reality. Anyway, so in meditation, which is the most non-virtual thing you can do, meditation is the most incarnational, earthy, it's as earthy as you know, cooking a meal or cleaning the floor. Uh, meditation opens us to this source as the power of love. And that's what gives meaning, ultimately, to both the light and the dark parts of the painting or the canvas uh, of our lives. And there's no, unless you have a completely black canvas or a completely white canvas, uh, any painting that attracts our attention, that seems meaningful or beautiful to us, is going to be some subtle combination of light and dark, light and shadow. And we see this very strongly painted in the passion narrative. For John Maine, we must build the liberty. Build the liberty is a phrase he uses. To enter into our own personal and unique relationship with the one who is with God. So we have to build the freedom to, and detachment gives us that freedom to enter into the unique way that is our way of being in relationship to the one who is that we call God. And here he's, you know, being a little cautious about using the word God. Because even to talk about a relationship with God suggests it's like a relationship, you know, with your hairdresser or your plumber or your, you know, uh, uh, taxi driver. So it's not quite that relationship in that kind of way. But it's, so we build the liberty to discover that we are this unique relationship. We don't have this unique relationship. You are this relationship with the one who is. And then he adds, the relationship with the one is our relationship with all. If, if once we become conscious or sense this relationship with the one who is, that's all we can say about God, and it's because it's all really that God says about God's self, I am who I am, that are, once we become conscious, touched by this relationship with the one who is, 
then we begin to realize we have relationship with everything that is. And this is you know, a lived theology uh, for the meditator. Even if we don't think about it or talk about it, uh, we see it. We see it happening in our relationships with each other, with everyone, as meditation does, does it and does this deep and silent work. And it can happen quite quickly. I was talking to a man the other day who has been meditating for maybe two weeks. And uh, he's got, he doesn't like to talk about God. He's not a religious person. But he, uh, he really wants to meditate. And he's been practicing it faithfully or you know, regularly, taking it seriously. And he said, um, I said, how's it going? He said, well, I'm doing it. And yes, I, I can't have, don't have that much to say about it yet. But I think that I, I want to continue it. And then he said, and my wife said to me that I should definitely keep meditating. <laughs> and when he said, why? She said, well, because in the evening, when we sit and talk about the day, you listen to what I'm going to say. Because before, you, you know, within a minute, you'd taken out your phone or you were looking at the TV or something. So we experience this. We see it. Uh, in a very earthy way with, without having to theologize too much about it. And, and this is not restricted to any one religious or wisdom tradition. That's why I've been quoting from the Upanishads just to remind us that what, what we're finding in the, in the story of Jesus' last days is uh, something universal. Um, this is um, also from the Kata Upanishad. It's a translation by uh, Juan uh, Mascaro, which is uh, very easy and accurate, I think, but also a very easy translation to, for us to relate to. Um, and in this passage, he's he, he, he's, he talks about the, um, the interiority of this experience, finding the source of love within ourselves is our way of putting it. Atman, Atman could be called the self. So Atman, the spirit of vision, is never born and never dies. Before him there was nothing, and he is one forevermore. Never born and eternal, beyond times gone or to come, the Atman does not die when the body dies. Well, that's obviously picking up uh, and illuminating some of the meaning of the passion narrative and the resurrection. Concealed in the heart of all beings is the Atman, the spirit, the self. Smaller than the smallest atom, greater than vast spaces. The person who surrenders his human will leaves sorrow behind 
and beholds the glory of the Atman by the grace of the Creator. Resting, he wanders afar. Sleeping, he goes everywhere. Who else but myself can know that God of joy and of sorrows? When the wise realize this omnipresent spirit who rests invisible in the visible and permanent in the impermanent, then they go beyond sorrow. So the ripple effect of this experience is an expanding relationship. Because this reality that we discover in meditation is universal, that the, the source of love, the Atman, the self, the spirit, that, that I find in myself, in my daily meditation, and in the life that flows from it, is the same as that which exists in you and everyone else. Whether the other person that you are in relationship with is your friend at the moment or not. Whether they are your enemy or not. In, in, you know, marriages uh, go through their ups and downs and fights and sometimes terrible fights and sometimes short-lived fights. Uh, community is the same. Uh, you know, you can be friends one, one day, the next day something goes wrong, there's some misunderstanding or somebody's trodden on somebody's foot uh, or disappointed them and the next day, you know, they're not talking to each other. So that's life, isn't it? But the permanent in the impermanent, what's impermanent there is, of course, is the flux of relationship. Uh, the ups and the downs, the light and the shade, the love and the anger. That's, but that's impermanent. I mean, and if it becomes permanent, it usually becomes absurd. I mean, it's like many years ago, I was talking to a sister, a religious sister on retreat, and one of the things she wanted to talk about and I suppose she, was the fact that she hadn't spoken to one of her sisters in her community for 20 years. And uh, I said, what was the fight about? And she said, well, I can't quite remember. <laughs> you know, they just got into this kind of negative, ex excluding each other kind of relationship. So and that, you know, who knows? That's kind of reflected in relationship between Russia and Europe or North and South America and uh, colonial, ex-colonial powers and earlier colonies, the Irish and the English. So, you know, these, these habits of seeing the other person and the negativities in that relationship uh, carry on, you know, for generations. But the ripple effect of this is that there is an expanding knowledge that we are in relationship from the inner to the outer. It begins with discovering this within ourselves, feeling it within ourselves, and then recognizing the influence 
that it has in our outward relationships. This is the kingdom. The kingdom which is inclusive of everything. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is this glorious universal network of relationship where everything is in interdependent, everything is connected, this great ecology of creation. And we may look at this in a physical way as we look at the damage we're doing to the environment today and uh, the, the need we have to respect, to acknowledge, even to reverence this interconnectedness of being. So we don't discover, I read the other day that um, in, uh, in France, the, the bird population over the last, I forget now, 50 years has dropped by two thirds because of the use of pesticides. So, you know, that's, that's bad relationship, that we are not conscious of the relationship we exist in uh, at that level. Nothing is outside God, and so there is nothing that we cannot, are not, in relationship with. And our lives teach us this mystery, as it taught that man, as he heard his wife say that he should keep meditating. It's our lives that teach us this, not reading. Reading can illuminate what we're learning, what we're discovering through our own experience. But if we're not discovering it through our own experience, then what we're reading, what we're talking about, uh, studying, arguing about, it just becomes something disconnected from reality. It becomes abstract. And this is where the deepening experience of prayer is so important. And that why prayer changes us and changes the one who prays. We've always thought, well, kind of at a popular level and in a superstitious part of our minds, we think of prayer as our way of changing the world in order to make the world conform better to what we expect it to be. So we, we should, this shouldn't be raining today. So I'll pray to God with whom I have a good relationship because I obey these rules and I do this or that good thing. And uh, maybe <laughs> uh, the weather will change. Well, the weather will change, whether we pray about it or not. Anyway, so the deepening experience of prayer, when we, when we understand prayer as something that changes us first. Prayer changes the one who prays. And then, as the Desert Fathers uh, understood, the one who prays in this way is a theologian. In other words, once this experience has awakened within you and you're beginning to see its effect on your life, then your reflection on this, however you do it, your reflection on this transformation makes you a theologian, a real theologian, not just somebody who's arguing about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, or, you know, more abstract forms of theology. 
After the entry into Jerusalem, which we looked at yesterday, the plot of the story deepens. There are a number of scenes that follow in quick succession. And the first two are polar opposites, both about relationship. The first is the anointing in Bethany. Let me uh, read that for you. Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. When was the last time you had dinner with a leper? As he sat at table, a woman came in carrying a small bottle of very costly perfume, oil of pure nard. She broke it open and poured the oil over his head. Some of those present said to one another angrily, why this waste? The perfume might have been sold for 30 pounds and the money given to the poor. And they turned on her with fury. You must notice that. They are furious with her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why must you make trouble for her? It's a fine thing she has done for me. You are the poor among you always, and you can always help them whenever you like, but you will not always have me. She has done what lay in her power. She is beforehand with anointing my body for burial. I tell you this, wherever in all the world the gospel is proclaimed, what she has done will be told of her as her memorial. So, a very intense scene. The anointing is not like the crowds who greeted him in Jerusalem you know, for his, his election victory. But this is a sacrament. This is a profound, intimate sacrament. It touches the body. It's personal. It's a sacrament of relationship and of understanding who Jesus is. It is bestowing on Jesus the gift of recognition and reverence. And nothing is more enriching and affirming to, in the human condition than to be recognized for who we are. Just that. I feel, I know that I am recognized for who I am. That means not for what we, what we are, but who we are. Not for what we do. Not for our outward appearance, attractive or, not for our charm, not for our status, not for our power, not for our celebrity but for who we are. We live in a celebrity culture, and we know from you know, many tragic examples how celebrity can isolate people, lead them to misery or suicide or drugs. And yet we, you know, there's no relationship with a, a celebrity. It's just like having a relationship with a, with a statue. 
So, uh, but here in this anointing, this woman, there is this profound silent, because she doesn't speak, but tangible, tactile uh, recognition of who he is. Jesus said that it's harder for the rich and powerful to enter the kingdom than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Why is that? Because the rich and the powerful so easily become isolated and remote, suspicious of other people's intentions. And without relationship, we become disconnected without feeling that we are recognized for who we are, we feel isolated. The meaning of life is connection. And if there is no connection, we become abstract, virtual, virtual beings, not embodied beings. That's why the body is so important in this passion narrative. So many, not only the suffering of Jesus, but in the way the story is told, everything is corporeal. So in the anointing here, Jesus passionately defends the woman because of what she is teaching, what she is showing. And then the question of money is raised. Kind of lowers the tone of the conversation. Uh, how much? You know, it's like somebody gives you a present and then you say, oh, this is lovely. How much did it cost you? <laughs> oh, I got it on special. Or I actually had it in my bottom drawer and I just brought it out and gave it to you. So uh, it, this is a question, it's a practical question. How much is something worth in financial terms? But even raising the question in some, at some moments destroys it, destroys the value of what you are, um, what you are um, experiencing. So financial, financial costing or seeing something in terms of finance is sometimes simply not appropriate. So this is, this is where Jesus says this strange thing, or it, it, it might jar with us a little bit. You'll always have the poor with you, you can always give to them, but at this moment, it's not appropriate to put a price on what she did. Yeah. Or it would be as absurd if you go to a funeral and you, you know, go up to the, the, the bereaved p person and you say, that's a beautiful coffin, how much did it cost? You know, it's just not appropriate. So, uh, in modern life, we, we live constantly with the raising of this question of money. We call it economics. And we are just totally immersed in these financial, it's not that it's not important, unimportant, of course it is, but it has become compulsive and obsessive. 
and there's no room mm -hmm. often in public discourse for any other question of value except for how much. So, when money becomes the determining factor in human decisions, it breaks down relationship. It damages the relationship that is our meaning. It interrupts the expansion of this field of relationship which human development, human growth is, is about. It's the, and it's the shadow side of all life in many ways and of families sometimes and of religion. I met a priest some years ago who'd spent uh, a year at the Vatican. Uh, he'd been called in for some special job and I said, what was it like? And he said, well, I just came to, to be away. So there's some wonderful people there, some not so wonderful. But he said, uh, I came to began to come to the conclusion that every d major decision taken here is influenced by money, one way or another. So it can be the shadow side of religion, which if, if there's any field of life where one would expect that money would not be the the supreme value, it would be religion, but very often it is. So the purpose of money in a spiritual vision of life and of society is not to make it and hoard it, because then it breaks down relationships, but it's to distribute it. It's to spend it, to give it away. If we hoard it, we become attached to it, then it becomes not a way of connection, but of isolation. And that's why it's so difficult for the, for the very rich who are hoarding their stuff. Not all rich people do. Many rich people give it away. But those who hoard it cannot enter the kingdom of heaven because they cannot be in relationship. So the monetary value of the oil of nard in this story is less important than the act of anointing, the sacrament uh, that shows us uh, um, who Jesus is, anticipating his death, and our rela and relationship with him. And she will be remembered down the ages, not those mealy-mouthed people who complained. Now, this question of money might seem to be a bit of a distraction, but actually it's clearly an important symbol in the story. Because in the next scene, Judas betrays Jesus for money. We're just told um, he went to the chief priests to betray him to them. When they heard what he had come for, they were greatly pleased because they were looking for a way of getting rid of him and they promised him money and he began to look for a good opportunity to betray him. So in various forms, each of the gospel stories links the betrayal to money. Now, this connection of, I mean, a betrayal is the breaking or the damaging of a relationship. When it is associated with money, 
this suggests that the relationship itself is being blasphemed, it's being desecrated. So whether or not Judas was doing this for money is not, is not really so important. The important thing is the connection in the story. Similar, similar to when a marriage breaks down and the couple who once loved each other and still love their children become bitter enemies over the divorce settlement and the money, the house, the car, the pension, all the other stuff, that becomes the obsessive field of conflict. It's not the reason for the breakdown of the marriage, but it looks as if that's all they are talking about. They're not talking about what went wrong, how can we heal it, how can we move on. The, for, this, for this period of time, and it can be a long period of time, and it can cause tremendous suffering and damage, uh, it becomes money, becomes the obsessive explanation for everything, and it becomes the weapon for fighting. It's not, it's not actually connected to any, any of the real issues, probably. Money, I don't think many marriages that I've seen have broken down because of arguments about money. You know, how much are we going to spend on the car? Or uh, It's not money that breaks, but money becomes then the symbol of the breakdown. And therefore becomes this weapon of violence, very often, not always. So, so here we have two opposites of relationship, the anointing and the betrayal. Both of them connected with the question of real value. What is the real value? What is the real meaning of, of relationship? And they, these two come together in the Last Supper, which we'll look at later. So, um, we'll look, when we look at the Last Supper, we'll also look at um, the question of community, because that's what the Last Supper actually is. It's a sign not of a perfect community, because very obviously Judas was there, and he's hardly a perfect member of a community. But it is a sign of the inevitability of community. We have, we are just communal beings. This is how we are. And this is how St. Paul in the letter to the Colossians describes it. And he wouldn't, he wouldn't have had to describe it if the people he was writing to were living it every day. It's precisely because they were fighting and squabbling that uh, he had to do this, or nobody would, St. Benedict wouldn't have had to write his rule of St. Benedict if they were all living beautifully like angels together. Stop lying to one another. Now that you have discarded the old nature with its deeds and have put on the new nature 
which is being constantly renewed in the image of its creator and brought to know God. So there's no question here of Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, freeman, slave, but Christ is all and is in all. So put on the garments that suit God's chosen people, his beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Be forbearing with one another and forgiving where any of you has cause for complaint. You must forgive as the Lord forgave you. And to crown all, there must be love, to bind all together and complete the whole. Let Christ's peace be arbiter in your hearts. To this peace you were called as members of a single body and be filled with gratitude. Let the message of Christ dwell among you in all its richness. And then later in that section, the end of the letter to the Colossians, it's chapter three, he says, whatever you are doing, put your whole heart into it. So that's what we'll do now with meditation. Uh, put our whole heart into it. So we'll meditate now. Let's take a moment to sit with your back straight. If you're sitting in a chair, your feet on the ground, your hands on your lap, on, on your knees. Let's take a few deep breaths, maybe just to refresh. Feel the breath coming into you and letting go of the breath, being aware of that cycle that keeps us alive. Relax your shoulders, the muscles of your face, your forehead. Lift your eyebrows up so that you can sort of, and then relax them. Close your eyes lightly. Then silently, in your heart, begin to say your word, your mantra. The word we recommend is Maranatha. Ma-ra-na-tha. Ma Ra Na Tha. Listen to the word as you say it. Give it your full attention. And remember there's nothing else for us to, to do, nothing to achieve, except to return to the word. So you don't have to evaluate your performance. Just be faithful to it. That means when your mind has wandered, and you're solving some problem or fantasizing about something, as soon as you realize you're doing that, drop the thought and gently return to the word. Ma-ra-na-tha. <laughs> 